Welcome everyone to another episode of Palm Peeps. Uh, today is a particularly exciting episode because we are kicking off a new series of episodes. This is called the Palm Peeps Fellows Case Files. And uh, Monty, I really just can't wait. Me too, first. Welcome back, everyone. This series is all about highlighting fellows from around the country, as well as learning from exceptional cases that they see every day. There are so many great training programs out there, and each of them have these amazing fellows, case conferences, and teaching opportunities. Here at Palm Peach, we want to help fellows share these more broadly so that we can all learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there are so many topics that I really only remember well because there was some specific case presentation that I gave or a co-fellow gave, and we'd love to just sort of share that opportunity. And further, like I remember working so hard on some of these presentations and I know fellows around the country do it. So we'd love to sort of amplify their work and share it more broadly. Totally agree, first. And as you said, we have another purpose too. There are so many fellowship programs all over the country and world with such fantastic teachers, and we'd love to connect more people to these programs and expertise. So for each episode of Fellows Case Files, we'll have a fellow in training, as well as a fellowship program director, and we hope to bring in a diverse group of trainees, faculty, and cases for you to learn from. Yeah, this should be really fun. Uh, so if you hear this episode and you have a great case, definitely reach out to us on Twitter or email us, and we'll try to get you on the show. Uh, but for now, let's get started. So to launch things off, we're welcoming two guests from the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. First, we have Fahid Alganam. Fahid was a senior pulmonary critical care fellow up until just 11 days ago, and now it's finished and is an independent practice. He attended medical school at the Lebanese American University of Gilbert and Rosemary Chigori School of Medicine and completed internal medicine residency at John Hopkins Bayview. He has published on topics ranging from lung transplant to patient navigators in the ICU. Welcome to Palm Peeps, Fahid. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to be here. I love your podcast and I can't wait. Great. And next we have Dr. Van Holden. Van is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She specializes in interventional pulmonology. And in addition to that, uh, Van is the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Program Director. For those of you who went to ATS this past year, you may have met Van or seen her work as she helped write the core curriculum and helped coordinate the resident boot camp. It's amazing to have you on the show today, Van. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm excited for this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Us too. So for our disclaimer, just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice. The views we express today are our own. They don't reflect our opinions or policies of our employers. And the case we have is HIPAA compliance. So some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. Awesome, Perf. So let's go ahead and get started and dive into the case. Fahid, it sounds like you have a case that spans many months. Can you go ahead and start with the initial patient presentation? Absolutely. So this uh, patient was a 26-year-old man who presented initially to his PCP for a month and a half of intermittent dyspnea, cough, and chest tightness. On evaluation, immediately the PCP realized that the patient was hypoxemic. He was satting 83% on room air, and he was wheezing on exam. So the PCP ordered a chest x-ray that showed diffuse, hazy, peribronchial opacities in all lung fields, and then uh, sent the patient to the emergency department. I know this is a little bit of information, but what do you think so far? 
Yeah, and, and I think pretty concerning uh, for a young person to be coming in and saturating 83% on ambient air. That's certainly uh, um, sending to the ED sounds like the right thing, and, and my antenna are up. The diffuse infiltrates also certainly matches up with the severity of how it seems to be presenting. But I say the time course does feel a little bit atypical. In general, a young person coming in like this, hypoxemic, I'm thinking infection, I'm thinking maybe ARDS with diffuse infiltrates, but he certainly doesn't seem to meet that criteria for acute that we think about in ARDS. So then I start thinking about some of these more insidious diseases. We've talked about autoimmune and connective tissue diseases and associated ILD or infiltrates and organizing pneumonia. And certainly lymphoma is always up on the differential for a young person for me. Uh, and then we've talked about also how exposures and, uh, you know, toxins and medications can have an effect like this in the lung. So a young person who lives like this presents with infiltrates and smokes cigarettes. This is like, and as a young man, classic palm boards question for eosinophilic pneumonia. And so we'll certainly have to take a big social history. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and the history that we got when he eventually got to the ED? For sure. So he uh, presented with shortness of breath for a month and a half to two months prior to presenting to the PCP. More recently, he's been feeling worse and worse. And he actually mentioned that he couldn't go to the gym anymore. He likes to go to the gym, couldn't do it. He has been experiencing an unproductive cough and chest tightness. Of note, his brother had a recent episode of bronchitis. And so he was concerned that could be an infectious problem that he has. Uh, for the review of system, he didn't have any fevers, night sweats, weight loss, or any connective tissue disease type symptoms like Raynaud's joint pain, rash, or Zika symptoms. His past medical history includes asthma, allergic rhinitis, and migraines. And he has a extensive family history of asthma and multiple siblings. For the medications, he takes naproxen, excedrin, migraine, and albuterol as needed. He does not smoke cigarettes, but he mentioned that he va vaped for the last year. Initially, vaped nicotine products, and then in the last six months, he vaped THC-containing products, and he works as a physical therapist and has no significant uh, other exposures. On exam, he was afebrile, dormotensive, and had a normal heart rate, but he was hypoxic, and he actually required high-flow nasal cannula, 65% FIR2, and a 40-liter flow rate to be saturating in the low 90s. His physical exam was notable for crackles bilaterally, and Besides some eczema on his skin, there was nothing else to know. So, uh, Christina, do you have any thoughts about the differential? Yeah, and I think I mean, that was a lot of great information. And um, as Ferf said, I'm, I'm you know extremely worried about this patient requiring that much much oxygen. I'm kind of without a past medical history, um, so there's still a lot of questions. And I'd definitely be interested in imaging for the patient. But the history that you provided, I think, helps us some. You know, like first said, it seems like very acute presentations are lower on the differential, such as ARDS. Um, additionally, while infection is still possible, um, we think it'd be more indolent, maybe like an endemic fungal infection or TB or HIV with uh, PJP in the right clinical context. Um, however, the course makes something like pneumococcal pneumonia less likely. Um, you mentioned but he, that he does have a personal family history of asthma as well as eczema. Um, but asthma alone um, shouldn't cause the diffuse infiltrates that we're seeing um, or that you described on his imaging. And, you know, we've talked about aspergillus um, as well in the context of asthma. So something like that could be considered. Um, but, you know, obviously we're, we're keeping our differential broad at this time. And I think um, one of the most uh, kind of our, the thing, one of the things that stood out to me the most that you said regarding social history is the vaping. 
Um, we know e-cigarette or vaping associated lung injury needs to be considered in anyone who vapes, and it's more strongly indicated uh, with patients who, who vape THC-containing products that can contain vitamin E acetate. So this is also high on the differential. Um, and then finally, um, some of the things that Firth mentioned, you know, inflammatory or autoimmune lung conditions, specifically eosinophilic pneumonia or a new rapidly progressive ILD um, could still be possible. Yeah, Lance, I totally agree with the vaping. I remember in that uh, early 2020 when E-Valley was like the biggest pulmonary disease out there and then COVID swooped in and <laughs> took its crown. But uh, certainly it was something that came on. Suddenly we didn't know much about it and we certainly learned more about it uh, in the association with vitamin E and THC products. Uh, so I know we're going to get further testing. Van, if you were the attending on the poem consult service, what kind of tests would you want uh, at this point? Sure. So I think part of the workup would include getting a CBC with differential. In particular, I'd be looking to see if he has peripheral eosinophilia, because this could suggest eosinophilic pneumonia, um, especially in this patient who has a history uh, and family history of asthma. Um, peripheral eosinophilia could also be present in E-Valley or um, endemic fungal infections. As you mentioned, the subacute presentation is unusual for infection unless he's immunocompromised, uh, but he is severely hypoxic. Um, so I'd want to be thorough and making sure to rule out infection. Um, thus, I would check a viral panel, especially uh, in the setting of the COVID pandemic, sperm cultures, uh, strep pneumonia, legionella, antigen, and HIV. So. Some people may obtain inflammatory markers uh, or procalcitonin. It may not necessarily be helpful in narrowing down a differential diagnosis. Uh, what I would want, though, is the CT of the chest. So I'd want to further characterize these bilateral opacities to see if it uh, meets the pattern for one diagnosis over another. With its vaping history, E-Valley could present as ground glass or consolidative opacities like lipoid pneumonia, uh, or he could have a underlying interstitial lung disease, in which case I would want some a serologic workup. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned like the procalcitonin. I feel like that is a, a topic for us, waiting for us to cover it, right? Because it's you know <laughs> used so often, and how much stock do we put into it? But uh, it, it think it, I think I would definitely send it if my hospital had it for sure. Van, going back to your um, diagnostic approach, um, it's like yes to all of those. Uh, we want to send those, you know, as soon as possible. Uh, so, Vicky, can you tell us about some of the diagnostics that happen next um, with this case? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they obtained the CBC. The CBC, there was no peripheral blood eosinophilia. Actually, it was unremarkable. And his BMP as well was normal. Negative procalcitonin, his urine and strep, uh, urine strep and legionella antigens were negative. His HIV screen was negative. And then they did a um, uh, small serological workup, including ANA, ANCAS, RF, anti-CCP, complement, CKA, aldolase, that was essentially unremarkable. His CT scan was very, very interesting. So it showed severe bilateral diffuse ground glass opacities through all five lobes with superimposed interlobular septal thickening, uh, which was consistent with a pattern called crazy paving. Yeah, and we're definitely going to post these images so everybody can see them. It's a, an impressive CT scan, to say the least. And we've talked about crazy paving before. We had a radiology rounds. I really love it because it's like one of these great medical findings where 
the name just makes sense. <laughs> you know, it looks like a crazy phasing pattern. That being said, it can be a little bit nonspecific. So, uh, Fahid, could you tell us what were you actually describing when we say crazy paving? Like, what are the radiologists actually seeing? And do any things that it makes you think about or made you th think about with this case? Yeah, so I learned a ton when I saw this patient because it was my first introduction to crazy paving. And so um, it, it basically means that you have ground glass opacities and then superimposed inter and intralobular septal thickening. Uh, the distribution is, is mostly diffuse. Um, it doesn't have to be a specific location and doesn't really spare any areas in the lungs. Um, it represents active inflammation occurring in the lung, leading to both alveolar infiltrates, but not complete consolidation and interstitial edema leading to septal thickening. It's really nonspecific. So there's a broad differential and I'd like to break it down into categories. I usually use the same differential for most um, conditions. Um, so we'll start with infectious. Uh, for the infectious uh, etiology, PCP pneumonia could be one of uh, the pneumonia that can cause crazy paving. Mycoplasma pneumonia, COVID itself can also cause crazy paving pattern and then some mycobacterial disease. Then under autoimmune category, sarcoidosis could be one of them that could cause uh, crazy paving, but also pulmonary hemorrhage syndrome, such as Pasteur's disease or anti-GBM disease and Churchstrauss, which is an ANCA-associated vasculitis. Drug-induced um, is another category. Uh, pembrolizumab have been shown in case reports to cause crazy, crazy uh, paving pattern. And so that's another one to consider. Uh, certain cancers like mucinous bronchial alveolar carcinoma, and in, in, in particular, um, mucin would be uh, filling the alveolar space and so it would cause GGOs. And then the cancer itself with its lipidic growth could cause thickening of the septa, uh, interlobular and intralobular septa, and therefore you'll have the crazy paving pattern. Um, environmental and inhalational exposures, uh, such as lipoid pneumonia, like was already mentioned. So exposure to animal, vegetable, or petroleum-based oils can cause crazy paving. And then idiopathic conditions like chronic eosinophilic pneumonia, which was already on our differential, um, uh, idiopathic interstitial pneumonia, such as NSIP and OP. And then uh, one of the uh, biggest one is pulmonary, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. Um, and then for miscellaneous, ARDS is, is one of them, but it doesn't really fit our time course for this patient. He, that was an awesome review. And I really liked how you kind of broke it down into those six kind of large buckets. So again, for our listeners, we had infectious, autoimmune, drug-induced, neoplastic, environmental, and then idiopathic rounding us out. Um, so thanks again for that and kind of an easy way to to kind of start thinking about this in, in our head as we're, as we're moving forward with the case. Um, and it sounds like a bunch of labs um, have already been sent, specifically the ones that Van had recommended earlier. Um, and this um, maybe would lead to a few more serologies or any other um, testing based on our initial screening. Then, and I feel like at this point in the patient's workup, there's always a question about bronchoscopy. You know, one, um, if the patient could tolerate it, and two, um, the utility of doing one. Um, so can you tell us what we would look for for bronchoscopy in this type of patient that might help us? And would you ever consider doing a transbronchial biopsy or EBUS? in this context, or would you usually just um, proceed with the BAL? Good question. So I think Fahit provided a very comprehensive differential diagnosis for this crazy paving pattern. Doing a bronchoscopy in this patient would be very helpful to help evaluate and, exclu and exclude some of those diagnoses. 
Uh, so first, the BAL could help evaluate for infection. I would send for bronchial cultures, AFB stain culture, fungal stain culture, uh, PCP, PCR, and prolactinating. Uh, secondly, with the BAL, you can see if the return is getting progressively bloodier, which would be concerning for DAH. And if this is the case, uh, you could send the first and the last syringe for cell count and differential. Uh, thirdly, the differential can also help look for eosinophils or lymphocytes. Uh, fourth, with his vaping history, obtaining an oil red stain would be very important uh, to see if it is just P. valley. Uh, fifth, if the BAL return looks milky, then uh, PAP is considered. And I would send the BAL for cytology and PAS staining to help confirm the diagnosis. So I think you can actually evaluate for a lot of these uh, diagnoses with Jensen BAL. In regards to this, your second question about doing a transbronchial biopsy, I would consider the risks and benefits of the procedure, specifically asking, will the findings change management? Um, particularly in this patient who is already on high flow mesocannula and would be put at risk of bleeding a pneumothorax biopsy. And um, so I would just start with a BAL in this situation. That's great. And I, you know, we've talked about our differential filling processes before, you know, pus, blood, fluid, cells, protein. And I, I think we nailed all of it with some great pearls, like the oil red stain and the PAS stain. If you have uh, specific considerations for lipoid or E-Valley for the oil red or PAP for the uh, PAS stain. Uh, you mentioned the safety too. And I think this comes up all the time. It's like, what are we going to do with this patient who's so sick, but we don't know what's going on. So for a patient who isn't intubated, is there a particular amount of oxygen they would be on where you'd feel comfortable doing a bronchoscopy or wouldn't do it? And if you, if you had to do it in a patient who was pretty hypoxemic, you know, what kind of monitoring are you using and, and where are you getting it done? Well, that's another very good question. Um, I personally don't have a clear cutoff for oxygen requirement. I think taking into account the patient as a whole and what are the risks and benefits of doing the procedure, how needed. Um, are the results. And so in looking at the patient, I would see if they're tachypneic, if they're using accessory muscles or tripoding. Certainly, if there's any signs of a pending respiratory failure, I would not do the bronchoscopy. Um, on the other hand, if this patient is breathing comfortably, and as I had mentioned, is on eye flow at 65% 40 liters, I would consider doing the bronchoscopy, especially since this is a young patient and obtaining you know, a, a diagnosis that would be very informative um, to optimize the safety of it, I would do it in a monitored setting. So a bronchoscopy unit, the operating room or an ICU or somewhere where there's emergency airway capabilities. Um, I would discuss with the patient the risk and benefits and also uh, think about my procedure approach. So what can I do to help minimize the risk of him getting worsening hypoxemia? Um, so I mostly focused on providing adequate topical lidocaine, uh, giving small doses of sedation and rocking him with his head up, even sitting up, um, and for using an anterior approach. Um, Thanks so much, Fan. And I think that was, um, you provided just a uh, kind of a handful of so many practical pearls um, regarding bronchoscopy. So that was amazing. Um, so I want to just um, come back to our case for a minute to summarize. We have a young man in his mid-20s with asthma and migraines. 
and routinely uses nicotine and THC vape products, who is presenting with two months of progressive dyspnea, cough, and chest tightness. He is found to have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure requiring high-flow measles cannula, um, unremarkable basic screening labs, and a CT scan with a crazy paving pattern. Uh, Sahid, what happened next? Um, so he ended up having a bronchoscopy and a BAL, and uh, the affluence from the BAL was, cl was cloudy white. Um, there was a diff, a cell count and a diff on the BAL that showed 46% PMNs and 54% lymphs and no eosinophils. Uh, the RVP was positive for rhinovirus and there was 1,500 colony forming units per ml of uh, MSSA. Cytology was negative for PAS and GMS stains and there was no malignant uh, stains done. And then PCP was negative and he had no oil red coal stain ordered, unfortunately. All right, that's super helpful. A lot of the tests that Van talked about, you know, we think the rhinovirus is there to attribute this whole thing to rhinovirus would be pretty impressive. Uh, we consider it, you know, 1500 CFUs of MSSA. I'm sure we would treat this patient because he's very sick and he's growing a pathogen that could do this, but that's not that many. We usually think of, you know, 10 to the fourth as a cutoff for VAPs. A little bit more ambiguous what you would do on a non-intubated patient and what that cutoff would be. But again, probably warrant treatment, although I'm not feeling like it's a slam dunk. Uh, certainly sounds like no eosinophilic pneumonia. That milky white, you know, fluid makes me think about infection. Certainly makes me think about pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, although you said the PAS uh, stain was negative. And then, you know, it's too bad there was no oil red stain since E-Valley was something we worried about. Um, so it's still sort of on the differential layer for sure. Uh, definitely, Dave. So the, the patient was definitely treated for MSSA, but the team also felt the same way you did, that the MSSA doesn't really explain his pulmonary infiltrates and thought that E-Valley is probably the most likely diagnosis. Um, uh, and really the diagnosis of E-Valley is more a clinical diagnosis than uh, a, a diagnosis that requires stains and um, um, more labs. Uh, it's usually based on a clinical history where um, vaping happened in the last 90 days. It should exclude lung infections or uh, the infection is not good enough explanation for the findings and then absence of other causes. If there's a urine tox screen for THC, that, uh, then that adds it. And then sometimes we can do BL and vitamin E acetate assays in the BL that could suggest it as well. Um, based on this, the team decided to give him hydrosteroids and his oxygen requirement went down and improved to around two liters at rest and four liters with exertion. He was ultimately discharged on prednisone and PCP prophylaxis with close follow-up. So I, I, the one point I just want to highlight is I love that you mentioned how it's a, you know, a clinical diagnosis because we were learning what this was as it went, you know, like we didn't know about vitamin E acetate at first. And so it's not in any of the diagnostic criteria. And, you know, it's great that a patient like this is getting treated, even though there's not a proven diagnosis of it. So I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I think this has been um, such an amazing case and things that I've learned um, already so far. For a patient this young, I know follow-up's going to be important in ensuring that we have um, something set up for him the close um, in close proximity after discharge. Uh, so can you tell us how he did um, after being discharged from the hospital? Yeah, so this is where the plot thickens or we get involved. Um, so his prior course was all in an affiliated hospital. 
um, he was following as an outpatient and had become progressively uh, more dyspneic and more hypoxemic. Um, he had an extensive laboratory workup with negative uh, uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis panel, myositis panel, and an extensive autoimmune and connective tissue disease workup, which was completely negative. He did have PFTs as an outpatient that showed evidence of moderate restriction and a severe gas transfer defect. Um, he had an echo uh, that was unremarkable. Um, given his steroid responsiveness, his pulmonologist decided to put him on mycophenolate and and he was even starting a long transplant workup uh, and then had a repeat CT chest that showed minimal resolution of uh, the findings, um, which is somewhat unusual for, for E-value that's being treated. Uh, these are so tough, these cases with the young patients, especially when you're like not exactly sure what they have because, you know, you want to be aggressive, but it's hard to shoot blind. You know, I, I love that he's undergoing transplant workup. He's a young person and, and that's certainly appropriate. We definitely want to figure out what's going on. Van, when you have a case like this, you know, someone who's just not getting better, they're young, you still have just a presumptive diagnosis, but it's not quite fitting. You know, what further things can you try to do to figure out what's driving it all? Well, at this point, tissue is the issue. So he initially responded to steroids clinically and now seems to have worsened again. The radiographic findings haven't changed. So now would be when I would consider doing a bronchoscopy with transbronchial biopsy. Yeah, I love that. Um, and can you walk us through what that looks like, how that's done? Yeah, so this is typically performed under moderate sedation and with fluoroscopy. The first step is identifying where you want to do the biopsies. So usually you want to target the area that has the most involvement on imaging. Um, this patient has bilateral diffuse opacity, so I would select a lower lobe lateral segment to start with. And this is because if there's any bleeding, it's already in a dependent portion of the lung. And with the lateral segment, it's easier to see in fluoroscopy how far out your forceps is going. So I would wedge the scope in the targeted segment, advance the forceps under fluoroscopy until I meet resistance. This is presumably the pleura. Then I would pull back two centimeters and advance the forceps one centimeter during exhalation. So that means on the x-ray, I'm looking for the diaphragm to come up. Then I would bite or close the forceps. Now the hardest part, I think in the beginning is learning uh, is learning to know when you pull. So this tactile part is important because if you're too proximal and you're biopsying the bronchial airway wall, it's a harder tug. Um, but if you are far out enough, it should just be a slight tug. Um, so I would get at least five good samples from at least two different segments in that lobe. An awesome review. And I, yeah, I love the, the sense of that tactile. I mean, this is why we have someone like you doing these procedures, right? Experience is what drives all of it and knowing how to do it safely and well. So um, just to update you on the case, so they uh, had a repeat bronchoscopy with transbronchial biopsies at that time. Again, the cell count and the infectious studies were unrevealing. The lung parenchyma had some alveolar filling uh, with pink amorphous material on histology and then hemp hyaline molecules, as well as cholesterol clefts. They stained it again for PAS, and at that point, it was positive. So what's it mean? Put it together for us. 
these findings are consistent with pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. The milky white fluid on initial bronchoscopy was certainly consistent with that, and the PS staining on the histology uh, then uh, on the histology confirms that. Wow, that's uh, definitely took a little bit of turn um, from kind of what I was initially thinking, um, but such a great case so far. And I think this is a great time to point out how important it is to understand, you know, both the sensitivity as well as the specificity of the tests that we're using. So we definitely learned about PAS testing for pulmonary alveolar prognosis in a residency and throughout fellowship. But the definitive diagnosis is made by seeing PAS-positive lipoprotonosis material in the terminal bronchioles and alveoli on lung biopsy. So in the absence of this, it's often made by BAL-positive staining. Uh, characteristic imaging findings, as well as eliminating other causes. Um, and in addition, looking for um, GM CSF antibody testing, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, but in a few case series, a diagnosis is made on BAL in up to 60 to 74% of cases, but that still leaves a large amount of folks that may need transbronchial biopsies or even surgical lung biopsies to make the diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, 60 to 74% is a good amount, but it's not the ton, right? You know, it sounds like we should certainly still have a high suspicion uh, for making the gold standard diagnosis. And in a patient like this, where it sort of fit, but the negative probably threw a lot of people off. It's so important to remember these testing characteristics. Right? Can you tell us a little bit more about pulmonary alveolar proteinosis and how it sort of drives lung disease in a patient like this? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I learned a ton about uh, PAP when I met this patient. Um, so PAP is a dis disorder of surfactant uh, production. And so surfactant, the physiology of it, it helps with the surface tension of the alveoli and prevents its collapse. And it's cleared by alveolar macrophages. So if you have a defect in the alveolar macrophage or the surfactant itself, then these, uh, the surfactant protein would remain in the alveolar space and fill it up and then cause the syndrome. Um, usually it can, it, it has, there are three buckets of the disease. One is the congenital bucket, which, uh, uh, means that there's a mutation, either surfactant protein itself or in the GMCSF, which, which helps, uh, kind of, uh, bring macrophages to clear, uh, surfactant in the lung. And then the second bucket is secondary, uh, uh, which means that it's caused by another condition, uh, sometimes hemat hematological disorders or toxic inhalations, um, you know, such as vaping, and then uh, some medications. And then um, the last bucket, which is the most common, is the autoimmune or the primary pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, and it's caused by an antibody against uh, GMCSF. Um, and, and therefore it wouldn't get, uh, uh, the antibodies would uh, chelate this, um, cytokine and then prevents the macrophages from clearing surfactant and then surfactant accumulates in the alveolar space and causes the syndrome. Yeah, uh, that's a great review. Uh, and I, I just had a case just like this too. So I was just kind of reviewing it all myself and going over it. And like it, you said, the autoimmune PAP is like the main thing we think about. So that GM's ESF antibody, I have to send it off to sort of a specialty lab to run it. And, and when it comes back, it helps you sort of essentially confirm the diagnosis, even if you didn't have sort of the histologic uh, findings that we do in this case. You know, it's uh, a little bit more common in men than women and happens in patients in their 30s to 40s. And so sort of having a suspicion, this uh, patient sort of fits the gender demographics and a little younger, although it sounds like you said maybe that there's a secondary thing as well. 
That being said, he had this positive antibody. So it's always a question is like, does it trigger it? Or is it a combination of these diseases? You know, I, one really interesting thing about PAP is the treatment, the most widely accepted treatment for moderate to severe disease like this patient has is doing a whole lung lobotomy, which is just like exceptionally cool <laughs> to think about and, and to see. And so Van, I know that you do this. Could you talk to us about how a whole lung lobotomy is done? Yes, I'd be happy to. So um, personally, I enjoy cleaning. So I find whole lung lavage personally satisfying. <laughs> um, so it's typically performed in the OR under general anesthesia. It can take several hours. The patient is intubated with a double lumen endotracheal tube. So this allows one lung to be ventilated while the other lung is getting lavaged. This also means that the patient has to be able to tolerate single lung ventilation. Then we put the patient in a lateral decubitus position with a targeted lung for lavage up. We install warm saline using gravity into the targeted lung and then allow it to drain. During the entire time, uh, chest percussion and our best therapy is done. And the goal is to help loosen up all of this proteinaceous fluid to get it out. And we repeat the process until the lavage return is clear. Uh, this can take up to 18 liters of fluid sometimes. Um, our fellows get very proficient in doing chest PT. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, 18 liters, unbelievable. Actually, a quick question to that without the targeted lung for lavage being up, is that just to facilitate clearance of material or is it so that more blood runs to the ventilated lung and improves the VQ mismatch? So both. Yep. So we want to perfuse a ventilated lung, which is going to be an undependent portion. So one important aspect of monitoring during the procedure is to make sure that the lavage fluid isn't going into the ventilated lung. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and any role for sort of ECMO support in these patients? I mean, it sounds like you're doing quite a bit in the lungs and I know we have this sort of extracorporeal option that we could use sometimes. Yeah, so I think that's a good question, and it probably varies depending on the availability of ECMO. Um, for patients who don't tolerate single lung ventilation, one option is to do serial segmental VAL mm. until the return is clear, so the patient could just be intubated with a regular ET tube. Um, I've done this before, and it's certainly a much longer process, um, but our fellows become expert VALists by the end. That's awesome. Just as a side note, this patient's whole lung lavage took like eight hours. Oh my God. So ima imagine doing the, the segmental VL. <laughs> oh man. Wow. That's unbelievable. Does sound satisfying though. <laughs> yeah. I know. I still can't believe up to 18 liters. Um, just kind of thinking about it, I was listening. I think that's, that's crazy, um, but definitely happens. And I know y'all shared some incredible photos with us and we'll definitely make sure that we post those online with the case so that we can get a sense of what was happening. Um, but we know that you clear the right lung with, um, you know, close to 18 liters um, and the left with about 15 liters uh, with progressive clearing of the fluid. So probably taking, um, as you said, the whole eight hours. Um, in addition to whole lung lavage, though, I'm wondering what other treatments should we be considering for these patients? Uh, there's a lot of interesting treatments that are coming up there. Uh, so inhaled GMCSF is a, a, is a consideration. There's a clinical trial that was published in the journal, uh, on a small group of patients that showed that there's 
uh, improvement in the um, AA gradient in patients who have been exposed to inhaled GS GMCSF over time. Uh, also improvement in their uh, DLCO on the PFTs. Um, and so that's uh, a consideration. Uh, there's actually a clinical trial that's still enrolling uh, patients for GMCSF and this patient was offered the option um, to enroll and has been just thinking about it, hasn't decided to do it. The other thing is if you're fit in the autoimmune bucket, uh, immunosuppression could be a possibility. Although you have to uh, keep in mind that these patients are more at risk for infectious processes. So giving them immunosuppression while they're, they could potentially harbor an infection that, that could be dangerous. So uh, sometimes treating infectious infections that you identify first and then doing immunosuppression later uh, could be a consideration. One of the things is doing plasma paresis to, uh, to remove the autoantibody and then rituximab to, to bring, uh, to target CD20 and bring down the B cell that's produced, that's producing antibody. In fact, this patient, uh, had Mac in his last, uh, uh bronchoscopy during the whole lung lavage. And so just kind of being weary of the fact that sometimes these patients have infections and, and, and being, um, uh, making sure you don't give them immunosuppression, um, that could potentially make their infections worse. That's great. And one fo uh, follow-up question regarding the Mac, uh, had, did you, um, did you treat, um, the patient for, um, for Mac or did you just kind of clinically monitor, um, symptoms for him? Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did treat the Mac. He was, yeah, he didn't follow, um, uh, with us directly followed with a, uh, uh, affiliated homologist, but they did treat the Mac and they also put him on suppression as well. Got it. Okay. Um, wow. Well, such an amazing case so far. And I think, um, those listening, um, and my definitely myself have learned so much about vaping lung injury as well as PAP. And one final question before we wrap up, um, and this is kind of open to, to the both of you. Do you think that there was a link between, um, the two? Um, I, I personally believe there is, uh, uh, there could potentially be a link between the vaping and the, uh, production of autoantibodies, but it's really hard to prove that, um, um, given that there's a secondary category under PAP that includes inhalational exposures. Um, if, if he didn't have the antibody, then I would say vaping would, would have directly caused this. Uh, but given that he has the antibody, it's really hard to say that. Uh, I know like sometimes you have to have a, an environmental hit before you get an autoimmune process. Um, and so it potentially there's a link and I, I just can't prove it 100%. Yeah. Makes sense. Sounds, sounds very plausible. So how is he doing now? Just to wrap it up. Um, he's doing much better. He's now off oxygen. Um, he is tapered off prednisone completely and has been maintained on Salsac. Um, he, as I mentioned before, he was offered uh, enrolling in an inhaled GMCSF clinical trial, and he's been thinking about it, hasn't decided to do it, has been able to go to the gym more frequently and exercising. His PFTs look better, um, especially the DLCO. So he, he's doing good. I'm glad for him. Happy friend. That's great. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you, because I know you said uh, initially on his PFTs kind of before before treatment for PAP, he had severe gas transfer defects. So 
Um, I, I would suspect with him going regularly to the gym, that's definitely um, improved. But uh, thank you for mentioning that um, as kind of his follow-up. Um, and I think we've had such an incredible opening episode for our Fellows Case File series. And um, thank you so much, Vegeta Van, um, for coming on today. Um, Perf and I are honored that we um, are getting to do this um, as kind of our initial case in our series. And we're really excited to start building the network with the University of Maryland. And we'd love for each of you to highlight what you love about um, the University of Maryland Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. Um, so uh, University of Maryland has been awesome. Uh, you see the most diverse sickest patients uh, in the region, uh, especially in the critical care uh, realm. Um, uh, it's also a place that's very supportive, takes care of you, especially during the COVID pandemic, we were allowed to have some time off when we needed it in, uh, in case someone's having some, uh, um, like issues, emotional issues related to patients that we've been exposed to. Um, it's, it's been an honor to train there and I feel very well equipped to be out of the community practicing pulmonary and critical care. Yeah, and for, for me, the answer is very easy to this question. I love my fellows, uh, including Fahin. They inspire me to be better leaders, uh, better positions. They are actually my role models, and I could not do this job without their support. Amazing. And you get to learn how to do great chest PT and whole lung lavage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so finally, we'd just like to wrap up with a takeaway point. Uh, this is a great case, and mine is definitely going to be that the, the BALPAS staining is not always the rule-out test. It's very specific when you find it, but if it's negative, it doesn't mean you definitely don't have uh, PAP, and so you should have a high suspicion and go for transbronchial biopsy or lung biopsy if you need it. Monty, what's your takeaway? Uh, I feel like I have two. I mean, I think just uh, Van provided so much practical knowledge regarding bronchoscopies and transbronchial biopsies. Um, but I really like uh, the head's kind of approach to crazy um, paving pattern on imaging. And, uh, and you know, I think we think of PAP a lot with that, but I really like how he brought those six buckets in. And again, those were infectious, autoimmune, drug-induced, neoplastic, environmental, as well as idiopathic. Great. Van, what about you? Yeah, so I think um, a good takeaway point would be thinking about all of the tests that you'd want to order on the BAL fluid or even on the biopsies. Um, it's much harder to add certain tests on afterwards. And so being comprehensive upfront, kind of reviewing what tests you want to get with other, um, with your attendings or even with your colleagues is important. Great. And Fahed, our, our fellow Case Files All-Star, now <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so uh, uh, learning about the uh, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis and the three major buckets that it fits into and the different treatments, this is kind of my major uh, learning point in this patient. Love it. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you all for listening to Palm Peeps and to our fellows Case Files series. Uh, this episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music is original music by Eric Rogers. See you next time. Mm -hmm.